The patient in this case is a 19-year-old woman um, of Filipino descent but born in Canada, and she is previously healthy apart from a history of eczema for which she's not taking any treatment. She had traveled to France on kind of a gap year after graduating high school, and while she was there, she developed a skin rash that was worse on sun exposure. She was also noticing some increased hair loss, shortness of breath, dry cough, and arthralgias. That's Dr. Sarah Hansen, a recent graduate of the UBC Rheumatology Program and an incoming fellow in auto-inflammatory diseases at the U.S. National Institute of Health. She's our guest on this episode of Around the Room. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by my co-host and Jedi Master, Dr. Janet Pope. Welcome back, Janet. How are you? Good. And how are you, Daniel? I'm pretty good. Thanks. Good. Today we're doing a our first special episode that we're calling Clinical Pearls and Medical Mysteries. Uh, you might remember that segment from the CRA annual meeting. So this will be a segment where a colleague brings us a challenging medical case and we, and by that I mean mostly Janet, will attempt to come up with a diagnosis or uh, teach me how to treat these things. So I think that there's probably a lot in here for, for everyone um, who's listening. Before we get into our case and discussion with our guests, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics. These include Sjogren's disease, auto-inflammatory diseases, and IgG4-related disease. If you have questions you'd like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account, that's at C-R-A-S-C-R-Room, or by email at info at room.ca. And for future Clinical Pearls episodes, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you'd like to present on the podcast. So now on to our show and our guest, Dr. Sarah Hansen. Sarah, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So you're a huge get for the podcast. Um, You are in between fellowship and another fellowship. Are you feeling excited about going to the NIH? Excited and pretty nervous, (laughs) but yes, excited mostly. Totally. Well, uh, honestly, having worked with you, they are very lucky to have you. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited for you. Thank you. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, we will uh, turn it over to you to kind of start us off with the case. And we'll, we'll try and be quiet until you you tell us we're allowed to talk. So you're the boss and uh, take it away, Sarah. Okay, sounds good. So um, the patient in this case is a 19-year-old woman um, of Filipino descent, but born in Canada. And she is previously healthy apart from a history of eczema for which she's not taking any treatment. Um, She had traveled to France on kind of a gap year after graduating high school, and while she was there, she developed a skin rash that was worse on sun exposure. She was also noticing some increased hair loss, shortness of breath, dry cough, and arthralgias. And she saw a doctor in France who prescribed prednisone 5 milligrams, which improved the rash and her joint pain. However, upon returning home to Canada, uh, she had ongoing symptoms, um, including a rash um, that was uh, described at the time as being erythematous polycyclic annular plaques, as well as uh, recurrent arthralgias, fevers, and alopecia. Um, She presented to hospital where she was found to have additionally a leukopenia, anemia, and strongly positive serologies for ANA, double-stranded DNA, RNP, SSA, SSB, Smith, histone, as well as hypocomplementemia with low C3 and C4. Antiphospholipid antibodies were measured twice and were negative both times. 
At that time, because of her dyspnea, a CT scan was ordered, which showed subpleural and peripheral nodularities throughout both lungs, which were believed to be in keeping with her overall presentation. Um, and she was subsequently given a diagnosis of lupus. So let's let's chat about what you've kind of just outlined as the beginning of the case. So Janet, is there, you know, she was diagnosed with lupus, and I wonder if at this stage, are you actually suspecting anything different than that? Or are you quite happy with the diagnosis? Does she check, 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 meet criteria, done? Right. So I think it sounds, you know, when it walks like a duck occasionally, it's not, but it certainly right now sounds like lupus. It doesn't sound like one of the funny genes you're going to discover at NIH next year. <laughs> so, uh, right. So basically, yes, it, um, rash, the rash, many rashes of lupus, but um, rashes, the blood counts, this, you know, whole plethora of serology. What's a little bit unusual is this nodular young, lung disease, because they're saying it's consistent, but ILD and lupus isn't very common. Alveolar hemorrhage is also very rare, but probably, you know, we're, we all have probably seen it or you will in your career for sure. But nodularity in the lungs makes me wonder, oh my goodness, are we thinking she's got lupus and something else? Mm-hmm. And that something else could be anything weird and wonderful or common stuff, sarcoid, old um, scarring stuff. I mean, we wouldn't think of multiple nodules as TB, histo, she's pretty young for that. So yeah, so I think right at this point in time, I'd say looks like lupus, I'd probably treat like lupus, but the lung stuff, I would leave a little bit of a question mark. Yeah, I think the full house serology is kind of helpful. And maybe sometimes when people have like terrible infections or like what appears to be some sort of weird immune dysregulation and you're getting like crazy serology that like doesn't fit, then you're like, huh, is there a different reason for like that this test might not be telling me what I think it is? But it seems like sounds like lupus to me Um, based on her symptoms and presentation in terms of initial treatment. What would be on on your mind, uh, Janet? Right. So I'd probably be thinking about obviously the anchor um, and anti-malarial, but she's sicker than that. So mm-hmm. hydroxychloroquine and I would probably wonder about instead of the five milligrams of prednisone that helped her before when she was in France, I'd probably think if she's that sick coming in, is she more like a 20 to 40 milligrams of prednisone, depending on how sick she looks and whether she kind of looks like she's anisarca with these low compliments and things like that. She probably isn't yet, maybe won't be at all. I would think about um, starting either um, Celsep, so mycophenolate mofetil or myfortic, or less likely azathioprine as sort of thinking if you're sick enough to come in with all these antibodies and uh, you're we're before a pretty young healthy person why not give her proper immune suppression so we can steroid spare in the long term now daniel would you think she's only she's only 18 do you think um you would want to play it like less prednisone or more or what would you think i i I mean as a as a non-expert i i was actually thinking kind of just in that same range of like a half milligram per kilogram or somewhere around 30 milligrams which is kind of smack dab in the middle of what you were describing and um maybe the only reason that i would be thinking of aza is if she is thinking of you know childbearing in the next little while but but actually you know usually I, i do try and are on the side of let's get your disease under good control first and then we can kind of address the importance of kind of fertility and and um you know childbearing if that's even in the cards um but but that that sounds very much uh similar to what you were talking about okay so we have a kind of a 
we're kind of at yes, yes on um, on treatment. So maybe, Sarah, we can kick it back to you. What happened next in this lady's story? Yeah, for sure. Um, so in this case, um, she was started on um, hydroxychloroquine, Plaquenil, um, and she was also started on prednisone 20 milligrams um, daily, um, but she was not started on any additional DMARDs uh, at that point in time. And um, I should have mentioned initially, but she did have just, um, you know, uh, upwards of uh, 50 erythrocytes in her urinalysis, um, and she'd had a urine ACR of just 13. Um, but for those reasons, uh, with the active urine sediment, she did go on to have a renal biopsy um, actually within the week uh, of her presenting, which showed class to lupus nephritis, and she also had had a biopsy of the skin rash, which had shown a non-specific neutrophilic dermatitis. Um, now, the somewhat interesting thing, I think, is that in the sort of five to ten days after having been started on the prednisone, she actually didn't improve completely, and she developed some new symptoms, including periorbital edema, facial edema, bilateral conjunctivitis, nausea, vomiting, headaches, um, despite the fact that her... Um, cytopenias uh, were improving overall and she was kind of in and out of the emergency department a couple of times over those uh, two weeks um, and seen by rheumatology on a couple of occasions as well as some other services including ophthalmology and ultimately the symptoms were thought to be not in keeping with her lupus overall and it was sort of speculated that she might have had um, a viral conjunctivitis and uh, gastroenteritis although that was not proven serologically um, and at some point in time um, for reasons that uh, are unclear to me for the notes um, she was started on a separate prophylaxis um, during those few weeks after she was first diagnosed. Um, after that, you know, the, the symptoms in the face settled down for a time and she was, you know, kind of out of hospital for about a month. Um, but then about a month after her first presentation, she presented again to the emergency department with again, um, much more marked facial swelling as well as a more biliform uh, rash um, over her face. Um, and she was also reporting some recurrent dyspnea uh, and cough as well. And so at that point in time, she had some additional investigations, um, including a CT scan of the chest uh, to rule out like a superior vena cava syndrome, for example, which was negative, but did reveal some persistent nodularity um, in the right upper lobe at that time, which was unexplained. Wow. Okay. So things are kind of progressing quickly. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask Janet a couple of questions. So... Um, one, what are your thoughts on SEPTRA in a lupus patient? Let's let's oh, ignore man. let's ignore the dose of prednisone right. for a minute. But right. but generally yeah. speaking, let's say you're giving cyclo or Ritux, things known to specifically increase risk for not just P, uh, you know PCP pneumonia, but also other infections. In lupus, do you use SEPTRA prophylaxis? I really don't like SEPTRA in lupus. Mm -hmm. um, we had our debate at the CRA and. Uh, at the ACR last year as well, they presented, uh, someone did a chart audit of like over a million uh, people at Johns Hopkins or Cleveland Clinic, I forget, but some place where they went back as far as their EMRs could go. <laughs> and they found, I, I forget exactly, but approximately say 13 patients with lupus and um, who might have had pneumocystis. And when it came down, there were three cases or something, two of whom were HIV with lupus and one that had lupus that was a uh, highly suspected. So in other words, they were treating, and this was out of many thousands of lupus encounters, not, not like thousands and thousands of patients, but a couple thousand patients. So the bottom line was it's pretty darn rare and there were side effects to getting uh, SEPTRA as well. So I don't like it because uh, patients with lupus have more 
um, side effects, more allergic reactions on SEPTRA than if you looked at age and sex-matched RA patients. And actually, uh, Dana Jerome did a study on that when she was a trainee and uh, found those findings. Um, so I, I don't like it. Um, I understand why we want to do it because we lupus already has uh, a very high risk of infection relative to RA. And then you add in prednisone, you add in their immune dysregulation, and then our other immune suppressives. So I don't, I get why they do it, but I almost never do it in lupus. And uh, that's, that's my thinking on it. I don't know that that would be consensus. Uh, Daniel, what do they do in BC? Uh, not, not used with any regularity in lupus patients. I think we're, we're fairly aggressive about using it in myositis and in ankyovasculitis, uh, where the infection risk is extremely high and we're, we're often using cyclorotex. So I, I think we're pretty consistent about that. It's it's also in the Canvas guidelines for our, our ANCA patients. Um, can you Janet, can you address like do you feel that there's reasonable evidence that sulfa actually flares lupus? I guess we're kind of in a flare already. So is it is right going to make right. it worse? So but, um, right. Anyway. So I don't I don't think we have any studies that um, say sulfa flares lupus. Now infection can you get a little hit of interferon and you mm-hmm. or a big hit as the case may be, and that will flare some patients. But that's infection, not uh, you know a drug to prevent infection. Okay. As a for instance, and I think as well, it's more um, Stephen Johnson dreaded pretty rare. But adverse reactions like rash or cytopenias are common, uh, elevated creatinine, rarely elevated potassium. But cytopenias and creatinine, you're saying, is it the lupus, the septra, both, neither? And I think that's why I don't like it. I don't like it because it clouds it a little bit for me. Yeah, I I think that's that's actually really important because like cytopenia is not really like the major piece of the other two I mentioned, like ankyovasculitis and myositis, that's not really a major part of those diseases. It may be part of the medication, but to, in a lupus patients, I'm not sure how I would, you know, sort those things out uh, without timing it with exposure to the, the septra. Okay, so then question two here. If, if you have this patient, so they have class two on renal biopsy, they have this clinical picture, they have a uh, um, south southeast asian um you know background and they're having facial swelling conjunctivitis how do you actually roll that into lupus so how how do you think that's related directly do you think that that's early anasarca or or something else going on well, it's funny because I kind of predicted earlier you she did. might have Anasarca. Did, I just yeah. got that vibe on what you were saying with the low compliments and stuff. Yeah. So been there, seen that sometimes. But um, see, I thought she was going to have COVID, right? Because, oh, GI, headache, conjunctivitis, COVID's associated with everything these days. Really? Um, so I, I, I don't, I, this could have been an intercurrent viral illness that's unrelated. But there's a, there are a couple things that don't fit well. Um, the rash, you shouldn't have neutrophilic dermatoses. We're thinking like sweet syndrome, some of these, um, weird auto-inflammatory things and a whole slew of other stuff. But neutrophilic dermatoses shouldn't be high on a list of a lupus patient. And then the other thing that I, I don't know if it sits well or not, but if the nodule some had already improved and we just had one upper lobe with residual, or is that where they were to begin with? It had improved. Interesting. Well, she'd gotten prednisone for whatever that's worth. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah. Uh, Daniel, are you finding other things that don't fit or can you, can you sort of say, well, now this person's going to have a morph diagnosis or a superimposed? You know, I, I kind of had the same uh, response to the neutrophilic dermatosis. That wasn't actually the biopsy result I was expecting. Um, I was staying quiet on that because I don't want to sound too foolish and be like, hey, why does this person have, a, <laughs> have this finding uh, on a podcast? But um, that I found a bit unusual. The facial swelling and periorbital edema and even conjunctivitis, I, I sometimes wonder, like, is that just conjunctival swelling that is a surrogate for edema that is all a surrogate for um, someone starting to get a bit capillary leaky in the context of evolving bad systemic inflammation? And so while sure, it could always be an intercurrent viral illness, a diagnosis that can be really hard to make, I guess, in the context of, of kind of nasty lupus, I, I am still kind of high pretest probability that this is of relationship to the primary disorder and not a second thing on top. And so I think, I, you know, I'm not sure that I would have come to a different diagnosis or changed things on top of our initial plan of Plaquenil, Pred, um, a second uh, uh, immune suppressant. But um, I would definitely try and roll that into the lupus diagnosis first before I say viral. And and that's all. Yeah, I, I think otherwise, right. just like you said. I, I think, yeah, and I think it depends on how long it lasts and things. Totally. In class two, I mean, you're not, on class two, you're not going to be this big nephrotic kind of patient. Totally. So we don't know yet what's happening to her urine. But mm-hmm. um, these young women, or, um, more common in women, of course, than men, with anasarca, they do worry me. And I, I think as well, they don't absorb their GI tract as yeah. edematous. So this is sometimes where I'd say, it, do we need just 60 IV solumedrol daily for a bit? Or do we actually need to pulse her on the, I think this is um, not going in the right direction that we would like despite more than a month of treatment and in and out of emerge a few times but you wouldn't have grounds today to say oh yeah i know you need three grams of solumedrol but i'm just getting my antenna up totally yeah okay so back to sarah so what what happens next for this young lady yeah so she's now admitted to hospital with the kind of facial swelling or anasarca, whatever you want to call it. And then this is the her sort of second type of rash. So the first rash was the neutrophilic dermatosis. And then this is more of a morbilliform eruption. And so she, um, she, her prednisone was increased a little bit while she was in hospital to, to 50 initially for a few days and then back down to 30. And the scepter was stopped. And the rash was biopsied in the hospital. And it revealed um, a, basically a mild upper dermal infiltrate uh, that was thought to be uh, consistent with a drug eruption. Um, and so overall, the rash, the morbilliform rash, was uh, thought to be uh, consistent with a drug uh, reaction to the to the septra. Um, and after that, um, after she had a little bit more prednisone and the uh, septra was discontinued, uh, she actually improved uh, quite a bit. And in terms of the swelling uh, overall that she was experiencing, and she was able to be discharged home. Um, and thereafter, for the next kind of six months or so, she was mostly in the care of her community rheumatologist. Um, from the notes that are available, um, it uh, it looks like that she had repeatedly kind of tried to taper down um, to a lower dose of prednisone, um, but had been unable to do so because every time she tried to do so, the rash would kind of flare up again. And I don't have the details as to the morphology of the rash at that point in time. Um, But for that reason, um, she ended up being started on a small dose of azathioprine, 25 milligrams, increasing to 50 milligrams. Um, And so that brings us now to kind of six months after her initial presentation. Um, And she never did go on to develop any significant degree of uh, proteinuria or or, uh, nephrotic syndrome. 
Um, so we're now kind of six months into her diagnosis. And at that point in time, her lupus at last reassessment with her community re- rheumatologist was felt to be under good control. Um, and she'd received her annual flu shot. And then sort of within 24 to 48 hours of having received that shot, whether or not it was a red herring, um, she developed um, high spiking fevers up to kind of, you know, 39.5 degrees Celsius. Um, and she presented to hospital where she was found to be pancytopenic um, with, uh, you know, fairly severe neutropenia, uh, neutrophils of point three, um, hemoglobin of about 100, uh, platelets of about 100, although they subsequently deteriorated further, um, whereas uh, her blood work from a month prior had shown that her neutrophils were normal, as were her platelets. She was worked up in terms of like a pan culture, and her initial blood culture was uh, positive for strep viridens, um, and she was also found on exam to have a large and tender submental uh, lymph node. Um, and so uh, at that point in time, she was initiated on appropriate antibiotic uh, therapy um, and rheumatology was consulted for what to do about her, um, her immunosuppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask, uh, were her lymphocytes also low at her admission to hospital? Is that part of the pancytopenia? She was lymphopenic, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Strep viridin. So, I, I mean, this is a little bit of a flashback um, to uh, internal med, but I, I think of that as a pretty sticky bug that can get onto the valves and, and even the aorta. Um, uh, did she get an, an echo at some point? She did, and it was negative. And she actually cleared her bacteremia on the second set of blood cultures, so it was a fairly rapid uh, clearance. Ah, However, she did continue to have fevers in hospital after that. Mm. And and no IVDA? No. Because I think a strep viridin sometimes is coming through needles, not always, but, um, and the mobiliform rash, was it only, it was biopsied in hospital way back before this sepsis episode, was it actually just on her face or was it all over the place? I believe that it had started on the abdomen and then spread sort of centripetally outwards to involve part of the face and just sparing the palms and soles. So flu shot, she gets a, a, a bacteremia. That's not at all really what I was expecting. Um, And she's still having fevers now despite clearing the bacteremia and having no evidence of an endocarditis. I think, you know, if I I was seeing them in hospital, I'd be like, okay, we kind of need to reestablish their lupus serologies and and see about concordance of their complements and their double-stranded DNA um, and see if there's anything else contributing to the cytopenias like uh, a Coombs test or, or DAD and peripheral blood smear. Um, which I'm sure we're we're all done. Janet, anything else that's kind of uh, on your mind just just now? Right. So I'm not sure how long she was on the 50 milligrams of azathioprine, pretty low dose, but um, we wouldn't expect uh, neutropenia from lupus. It's often more, it could be from sepsis. You can go pancytopenic with everything mm-hmm. down. But you would wonder, um, is there an azathioprine problem going on here as well? Uh Likely not, but just keep that in mind because that neutrophil count would be quite unexpected. So, and you know, we do have people who are septic, positive blood cultures, and at 48 hours, they're still spiking, but usually every day, you know, the high temp of 39.8 or whatever, we don't know how high it was, just starts going down and down and down. And I assume there was no rhyme or reason. So in other words, it wasn't like a um, twice a day rash that she defervest in between or anything that would make us wonder about an auto-inflammatory like systemic onset JIA or stills in adults. 
Yeah, so not in this case. She wasn't having, you know, those high spiking double quotidine fevers and the rash was, she didn't really have a rash at this point in time. There was nothing sort of a Vestilzy flavor at this point in time for her. So Janet, at this stage, I'm just curious, would you, in a sense, now that she's cleared cultures, would you challenge the cytopenias with a bump in her prednisone? Or would you kind of be working on the theory that this is an azathioprine side effect and the actual best thing to do here is watch and wait? Uh, Super good questions. I think it depends on how quickly something's coming up because, I mean, even healthy young people, but plus she's been on some degree of immune suppression, prednisone for a while now, probably six months or more, and a little bit of azathioprine. Um, their bone marrow cannot react well sometimes when, when sepsis comes. Mm-hmm. So I think it just depends on the sense you get. But I think it's an opportunity to, instead of doing the test for ASA, because she's already been on it for a bit, to say, well, you know, BC government will cover um, either my Fortic or Celsept, and we could switch you over because I do want her off steroids someday. Yeah. And the immune suppression, once the cultures are cleared, she'll get proper antibiotics for the right amount of time people are going to watch that heart valve the valves i think um, maybe at least auscultation a couple weeks from now as an outpatient things like that so i think it's not unreasonable to switch but that's a cop-out because i'm not telling you why i'm switching <laughs> other than maybe i can prednisone spare later i'm not necessarily yeah, yeah. switching because azathioprine is doing her in but i have um, almost killed a young lady um, when i gave her azathioprine the second time around the first time she was she was septic had severe pancytopenia. She already had a low, like lymphopenia, leukopenia prior. And I thought it was the sepsis. Got her out of hospital, put her on 75 only of azathioprine. And I have all over my chart, never do this again (laughs) on the very front. And I tell all the trainees, you know, because she basically within probably eight days, her white count was uh, undetectable. Oh my gosh. So, yeah, and, and of course, because I always advocate to the trainees, oh, we don't go looking for any tests before we start azathioprine. It takes too long. We start low and slow, so usually it's not an issue. Yeah. So there you go. So that was my learning that I learned the hard way, and so did the patient, but she's well now. Okay, okay good. All right, so, um, so what kind of happens next in her story? So. Yeah, um, so I guess just to try and answer some of your questions about, you know, the anemia and uh, the sort of assessment of the lupus activity. So um, she was persistently hypocomplementemic, but her complement C3 and C4 were not as low as they had been in the past. And her double-stranded was, you know, essentially normal at this point in time. And overall, the treating team at that point in time did feel that her cytopenias were potentially consistent with an azathioprine toxicity. And so her azathioprine was held and her prednisone had been tapered to 5 but the prednisone was bumped up to 20 milligrams at that point in time. Um, However, despite treatment of her febrile neutropenia with the appropriate course of broad-spectrum antibiotics um, and increase in the prednisone, she continued to have these high-spiking fevers in hospital. And she was re-examined, and she was found to have this persistent sort of tender submental node, as well as sort of diffuse cervical lymphadenopathy. She'd also had a sort of a tender indurated lesion um, over her left thigh, and she was subsequently imaged and found to have diffuse cervical lymphadenopathy a submental abscess, and then also bilateral um, ileosoas pyomyositis. Wow. Okay, that's not what I not <laughs> so what she, I was expecting. She, she didn't live happily ever after yet. Oh, no. 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 Okay. And no. and uh, 
do do we think that this is related to the initial bacteremia that this is a strep infection that's kind of spread to nodes spread to like gotten into muscle um is that kind so, of the, the initial thought well so um they they actually ind'd um the submental abscess and unfortunately they weren't able to access the iliopsoas uh, collections um but the um submental abscess actually grew a different organism it grew mssa so she now has two different types of bacterial infections. They also did an excisional biopsy of one of the cervical nodes, um, which was subsequently analyzed um, at the BCCA, and there was found to be no evidence of any malignancy or lymphoproliferative disorder, um, and the pathology was thought to be consistent with lupus lymphadenitis. And she did have that node, we have to remember, um, earlier too, before the sepsis had occurred, she had the uh, submental one, I think. So I think that was part of her initial presentation mm-hmm. uh, to hospital with the um, with the febrile neutropenia, and so probably it was that sort of submental collection all along, or it was an, a node that had maybe necrotized and then subsequently become super infected. It's difficult to say. Mm. So-, so Sarah, question: Did anyone do her gamma globulins? Yes. Um, so she did have at various points in time, including with her initial presentation, she had a whole set of quantitative immunoglobulins. And at one point in time in the summer, she was slightly low for IgG. And then those were repeated um, again in hospital. And I believe at that point in time, they were normal. In hospital, she did also have assays for CH50 and CH100. And she was found to have a mildly moderately decreased CH50 and a severely increased CH100, but that was within the context of this sepsis sort of polymicrobial infection episode. And so it was ultimately attributed to potentially sort of increased consumption rather than an underlying primary immunodeficiency. What are you thinking, Janet? Well, I wondered about an acquired immune deficiency because, um, you know, this was a, by 18 years, if you've got a hypogammaglobulinemia of clinical relevance because it's uh, something that would present as a kid, it would have presented by now. Mm-hmm. But acquired um, or the combined variable that are, you know, not not so challenging until something happens, usually something tips the apple cart. That's what I wondered about. And those folks like to have angioedema, I believe, and they do have higher autoimmune diseases. So you can have your over and underactive immune system. They love to do that and lots of things. So um, there is more lupus and lupus-like problems in the combined variable, I think. I'm certainly no expert on that, but it rings a very vague bell. So that's why I wondered about that, because that's going to make a difference on how you immune suppress her, because she hasn't gotten off prednisone yet. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to make a difference on... um, you know, the whole treatment is this someone who needs IVIG because or sub QIG because that's that's actually condemning them in a way to a lifelong thing. Right. I also still don't know what the heck was going on in her lungs, but it did kind of a lot of it was better. And we don't think of either of those as being a lung abscess is a lot different than, um, you know, things that are more maybe nodular that are sort of improving over time. So I don't think she had MSSA or stepviridens in her lungs, but, and I don't think you can get um, a resp easily to bronx someone when they go, well, that's not our issue. <laughs> yeah. You know, are, are you, I, I think you kind of had a nose for this earlier on. I guess there's also some roundsmanship that we're presenting a, 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 a case, so it's probably going to be a nasty one. Um, you know, the lupus lymphadenitis um, adding to the picture. 
is this kind of supporting the theory that this person actually has much worse lupus than just some alopecia, some serology, some arthralgia, some rash? Like, is your general sense that this person actually does have gradually evolving but pretty nasty lupus? Is that fair? You know, that's a really good question because the people I think of as really bad lymphadenopathy or that Kikuchi's, mm-hmm. or I don't even know if I'm saying it right, that syndrome that can go with it, uh, sometimes more other parts of Asia than the Philippines. I think everybody I've seen like that, although sometimes the lymphadenopathy is very self-limited after a few years, like they're pretty good. I've seen them have pretty bad lupus because I don't always wonder why. Like, I do wonder why. Why do we have to give them another name, too? It right. just confuses me. And then I have to go up to Wikipedia <laughs> or ask the trainees to go up to um, up to date and tell me what it really is again. Right. So, uh, but it's just a young person that's, you know, lots of adding features every month almost in the beginning. You, you kind of just think, you know, I don't, um, it, it smells like someone could go off as a, in a clinical sense that they, they worry me a bit, mm-hmm. even though that day they might not worry me it's like why are you adding this and this and this but you know i'm gonna have to think about um whether or not having a lot of lymphadenopathy is you know because it's all you know we do see it in lupus but yeah i usually see it when there's a lot more features but they do go with fevers too high fevers and lymphadenopathy because we're always saying is it lupus infection both or did infection set off lupus so we 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 sort of think that um daniel do you have experience where you'd say lymphadenopathy would make you go one way or another in a lupus patient like like pretty obvious cervical lymphadenopathy that we should worry more or we should worry about htlv3 or some crazy stuff that like the tropical paraparesis which she's in the wrong guy she she came from canada so she's in the wrong and france doesn't really have that too much um, I, I, just, I think I, I have seen it only a handful of times and a couple of them have actually started to uh, overlap that uh, some patients that actually ended up having Castleman's um, and, and things like that. So I guess it, it's an alarm bell for me that I should keep an eye on it and not not have diagnostic closure that this is definitely 100% lupus. I think having the excisional biopsy really helps round it out that this is in keeping with lupus. But keeping an eye on that, that that can be a really complex diagnosis. So no, I don't think I have additional expertise on <laughs> top of yours, Janet. All right. So, um, uh, okay. So maybe we'll, we'll go back to the case here. So Sarah, what's, uh, what's next for her? Okay. So the saga continues. Um, so she's now kind of two weeks into her hospitalization, broad spectrum antibiotics, think we're covering everything. Um, and she's having ongoing fevers, persistent pancytopenia with neutropenia, lymphopenia, worsening thrombocytopenia. Um, And she's also uh, found to have a rising ferritin, sort of greater than 20,000 at this point in time. Um, And then two weeks into her hospitalization, uh, she developed massive hemoptysis and was transferred to the intensive care unit where she was intubated and received uh, pulse steroids, so 500 milligrams daily uh, for two days. Um, And she was bronched. um, And at that point in time at bronchoscopy, um, there was findings of uh, endobronchial ulcer sort of sort of pale lesions uh, diffusely throughout the bronchial tree, um, which were biopsied. Um, and so at that point in time, um, there was sort of 
mounting evidence, I guess, based on the rising ferritin, the persistent pancytopenias, as well as the fevers uh, that she was developing an MAS type picture. Um, and so uh, she ended up having a bone marrow biopsy, which showed a hypocellular uh, marrow and also evidence of hemophagocytosis, which was thought to be supportive of MAS slash HLH. Yikes. Okay, so things are going downhill. Uh, a couple of comments here uh, for Janet. So Janet, when you have a lupus patient with diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, which brings with it a, a pretty uh, kind of abysmal prognosis, um, I understand. Do you, what is your pulse regimen? Do you use 500? Do you use 1,000? Um, do you think there's a difference between the two? Right, so there, we don't know in, in alveolar hemorrhage, but certainly there is a thought, even though I can't say I subscribe to it in clinical practice yet, but there's certainly a thought that um, pulsing solumedrol, less dose or, or less days of it for uh, lupus nephritis might, and there's a big M in might, be equal to your gram times three. And some of these lupus nephritis trials, some people weren't pulsed at all, or they were pulsed like 500 times two or a gram times two mm -hmm. as opposed to our three grams. I would have gone though, because this is really scary business, I pr probably would have gone uh, very broad spectrum antibiotics in a gram IV times three. Mm -hmm. And then um, I, all this uh, macrophage activation stuff really scares, I think, adult rheumatologists because I think it scares everybody, yeah. but adult rheumatologists because it's difficult to really know what do we do and how fast do we get stuff in. And I, I would actually call on a pediatric rheumatologist to say, hey, is this like chlorambucil? Do we try to get some? I don't even know if you can get cyclosporine IV, but do we need some kind of um, uh, tacrolomus? Do we need... Um, you know, some of the other drugs that have been well described to help this patient. Mm -hmm. And I still think I'd be covering for um, sepsis. I mean, she's got stuff like she has abscesses all over. And we're also not trying to do her in by infection either with her uh, immune system. That's now everything's gone kind of crazy. That's one thing. The other thing is I have no idea why they did the ferritin. <laughs> it's like she's really sick. It's an acute phase reactant, but 20,000 is off the charts. You know, if it was yeah, 6,000, yeah. you go, yeah, that's the acute phase reactant. But I'm not sure why they did it. And I don't even think of doing that for suspected macrophage activation. I think of doing the workup of some of the uh, markers they do, which I usually get hematology to help us with, yeah. but also looking at the marrow. So I wouldn't have even thought to do it, but maybe it leads us in one direction over another because I honestly don't think of it as a tool for uh, macrophage activation or H, um, the other one. Yeah. Um, it, you know, I, I have to say that I think it's probably because um, I'm a little green and uh, I, I, my subspecialty is not lupus, so I've not seen a huge burden of MAS or HLH cases. But I, I kind of feel that when we start to get into that realm of, e even if lupus was the thing that set it off, I really do lean and, and share these cases with hematology because they, you know, sometimes they can be really helpful in steering the immune suppression because sometimes it's atoposide is the appropriate, you know, yes. initial agent yep. and that's not if a medication I'm comfortable with. Yep. And um, and and they they see this with such high frequency that I, I often do need some hand holding in terms of how to treat them. And I don't like making it up and being like, oh, well, we'll use cyclophosphamide and uh, this dose of steroids. 
um, the MAS cases I've seen recently have been treated with enormous doses of steroids, and then the tapers are much slower, 100 milligrams, you know, uh, you know, huge doses of DEX um, up front with very, very gradual tapers, so much higher than I'm used to using on a regular basis. And um, what are the endpoints for where the ferritin comes down to before the immune suppression turns over to my hands, and we're now just treating the lupus of it all? And I'm sure that there are listeners who are so much more comfortable managing this without the handholding of, of hematology. So uh, that that might be, um, you know, uh, very rookie of me, but I, I certainly ask for help in these I, cases. I, I, I mean, run a by is, the lupus clinic as well. Yeah, because yeah. this is this is a critically ill patient. And then totally. I also don't know what the heck is going on in her lungs. Because yeah. oh I, don't, I think of alveolar hemorrhage as um, not like a leak. I think there's probably, well, I say probably, probably some degree of active inflammation down there. But she has all these, this path that to me is, um, doesn't sound like lupus. It sounds weird. It sounds unusual. And because, again, a lot of times they won't bronch. They go, well, you know, the oxygen, they're so precarious. They don't want to desaturate the patient. They just don't want to do it. It's not reimbursed enough at the middle of the night. Who knows? But um, (laughs) I I, I do agree. We need this. This is a multi-specialty at people weighing in because I would want to say respirology. What do you think this is? Path, can you re-review and put it together for us? Because maybe they know more stuff than we know mm-hmm. and then um what drugs and what sequence and with how much steroids and then id you know i would still cover her broad spectrum because totally. something set her off and yes the lupus did yes probably infection but we got to put that fire out and not like knowing that she's got pus pockets at least two left behind in her thighs yeah and ulcerating lesions on on bronch is such uh, uh, you know we uh, no one can see this it's a podcast but me and Janet kind of both uh, did the raised eyebrow emoji and um, we just thought that was such an unusual finding I wasn't expecting it I've not actually seen that before um, in a in a lupus patient so that would certainly make me go okay I definitely have homework to do tonight I need to do some lit review and see if that is its own presentation within lupus that portends something different or tells me about something different. So that, that's a bit odd. Um, so maybe, maybe back to Sarah. So, uh, I really hope. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm We're praying stumped. for this person. Yeah. Yeah. That, this is getting nasty. Yeah. Um, well, the story has a happy ending. So, but, um, so to your point though, so at this point in time, multiple services were closely involved and everybody collaborating together. And I, I would say at this point, even time, uh, rheumatology had taken a bit of a backseat. And I think hematology and infectious disease and critical care were driving the bus, uh, sort of with the rheumatology ad- advising as well. Um, and so, uh, she was broadly covered with antibiotics and actually double covered for fungal, um, before she was pulsed. Um, and then she was pulsed for the two days with 500 of solumedrol and, um, she had a transient improvement in her ferritin, but then it started to climb again and actually went up above 40,000 now. And there is no improvement in her clinical status um, in terms of her cytopenias or anything like that. And so hematology had been ordering all of their fancy tests that you were just alluding to, um, Janet. And uh, so the soluble IL-2 receptor came back, you know, sky high in combination with the 
very elevated ferritin as well as the bone marrow biopsy results. Um, overall, uh, hematology felt that it was time to pull the trigger on the atopicide and dexamethasone-based full HLH uh, therapy. Um, and we have a protocol for that um, uh, treatment uh, here that's based on the HLH-94 regimen that was developed for the pediatric um, population. Um, and in her case, just because of her performance status being so low and the multiple infections, um, they decided to do dose-reduced uh, uh, atopicide uh, for her. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this message from the CRA. As virtual care becomes a common aspect of rheumatology, there is a need to learn and practice a more standardized approach. The CRA has developed a series of online training modules on the best practices on how to navigate a virtual space. This educational resource is a Section 3 practice assessment activity and it's made exclusively available to CRA members. For more information, visit www.room.ca and look under Continuing Education. These virtual care modules are supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Novartis. An independent CRA Scientific Planning Committee was responsible for putting together this content. And now, back to the podcast. Now, Sarah, did you not publish a case series on an IL-2 inhibitor for uh, these sorts of cases? This is one of the cases in my case series, and I actually wasn't involved with the patient at the time. So I know about this, like through reading about it extensively, preparing for my paper. Yeah. But yeah, I just thought it was a really interesting case. Uh, but yeah, this is one of those. Yeah. Interesting. And and so in whom would you use kind of an IL-2 agent instead? Like, do you have any kind of content knowledge around like, why a top aside here and not IL-2? Why, like, why do we, why not cyclosporin? Do we have any really good evidence for one over the other? Kind of a high-level heme question, but just wondering if uh, you have any insights. Yeah, so I'm not a high-level hemo. <laughs> I think, um, you know, there was a, a clinical trial for the pediatric population where this regimen was thought to be, you know, the superior and recommended uh, therapy. If my memory serves me correctly, I might be remembering that wrong, but it is the standard of care for the pediatric group. And um, initially, with the initial HLH-94 protocol, they did add cyclosporin to the protocol, but subsequently that was thought to be sort of a limited additional benefit uh, beyond the atopside and the duct. So mm -hmm. oftentimes, contemporarily, the cyclosporin gets left off. Um, I am not um, too knowledgeable about anything to do with IL-2 inhibition. I know that there is some data published uh, for interferon alpha inhibition, so emipalumab, and that was considered in this case, but they were denied compassionate access for that. And so there had been some, um, I guess, observational data um, that the JAK-1-2 inhibitor ruxolitinib um, could be potentially helpful in these cases. And so in this case, the treating hematologist was kind of, I think, interested in, in using that, and he had had some pretty compelling results with patients uh, with HLH of various triggers over the last, um, you know, couple of years that he treated with ruxolitinib. So in this case, that was added as well. Gotcha. Okay. Yes, I, I totally misremembered that. Sorry for butchering that. But uh, ruxolitinib, you had published a case series on that and listeners should definitely go give it a look. Uh, and I'll have to refresh my memory as well. Okay, so this and, and is that oh, the one is that the one though, that is the polycythemia treatment? Is that yes? The, yeah, it's so that's the Jacks. Yeah, I think polycythemia yeah. and a couple other uh, weird primary myelofibrosis. Yes. I think. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
because that, I mean, we all use the tools we know. So in general, heme is going to use that because they use it all the time. Whereas we might say, oh, well, what about we don't use it, but we we like monoclonal antibodies and receptor blockers. So what about the IL-2 inhibitor? But I would always, on something like this, defer to them. And uh, as much as I read about it, I honestly get uh, macrophage activation and HLH kind of mixed up. And I wait for him to order the tests and they go, oh, here's our definitive. Because they are a bit different, but they're both really sick patients when we see them in consultation. Yeah. And we always, I always get him to help. Totally. Definitely. And I think in this case, it was really the fact that she didn't respond to the treatment for MAS, which was the pulse steroids, which should have been enough to control the lupus if the connective tissue disease was the underlying trigger. And so I think that was, you know, the main reason why she was thought to have developed this more sort of full-fledged HLH type syndrome. Mm -hmm. So she's now been started on all of her dexamethasone and atopicide. And actually, just about the same day that they pulled the trigger on starting all of those treatments, the pathology from the endobronchial biopsy comes back, and it shows invasive aspergillosis. Oh, my gosh. Because, you know, yeah, I was thinking that maybe she was going to be one of those brucellosis or those other ones that start with a B that I know nothing about, like Bartonella or something, because I thought, you know, it sounds like a weird infection, and I think that infection set off a lot of things. I, I don't know if any of that stuff is more common though in France or if it's just one of those bugs that you're just unlucky to get it somewhere along the way. Yeah. What do you think, Sarah? Was was there kind of anything um, in your review that kind of pulls all these infections together? I think for me, um, you know, learning about this case and just thinking about it so much over the last year or two, um, there's always just been this question in the back of my mind, exactly like you were saying, Janet, about like, could she have some sort of an acquired immunodeficiency? Because just to have so many serious infections of sort of varying stripes um, at the same time and sort of this really aggressive, weird lupus phenotype, um, it just seemed really odd. And, um, you know, I... I've seen one or two patients with unusual acquired immunodeficiencies in the past, um, like an autoantibody to interferon gamma, for example, that ended up with disseminated MAC, uh, for example, and, and you treat them with rituximab. And I'd always kind of wondered about that in her case, although subsequently it was never proven, unfortunately, or fortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, it didn't come yeah. to a big path uh, biopsy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. It's really, it's really strange, but I think you know, you're kind of damned either way. She has to be on high-dose steroids very high for quite a while, and we're worried about all this. But some of the acquired immune deficiencies I've seen have been also uh, viral things like zoster. Recurrent zoster is common in lupus anyway, of course, and more common if you're on high-dose steroids, other immune suppression. But where they've had vasculitis around the zoster, like in their brain, um, under a V1 kind of thing and stuff like that. So this is really unusual in that we have the one, you know, a very atypical um, fungal-ish uh, bug, and we've got two common bacteria that are, you know, not so common for an 18 to 20-year-old kid to have, um, even with the degree of immune suppression she had. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be kind of wondering if at some point someone's going to trigger IVIG or SOQIG just because. Yeah, maybe a consult to allergy, um, you know, at, at some point too, just to ask the question, because I'm, I'm certainly not a content expert on that. Yeah. So Sarah, how did how did things turn out? 
Yeah. So um, basically, she had a rocky course in the ICU mm-hmm. for a couple of months, and IVIG did end up being added to her HLH-directed therapies, not necessarily because of a suspicion of underlying immunodeficiency, but just as an HLH-directed adjunctive treatment. And in the ICU, she had, you know, multiple complications. She had some intracerebral hemorrhages. There was, you know, episodes of decreased LOC, disconjugate gaze. Uh, it was unclear if, you know, this was potentially a CNS manifestation of the HLH. She ended up receiving intrathecal methotrexate and she had multiple different sort of uh, infections that were associated with prolonged neutropenia that was thought to be partially related to the atopicide and, and the other treatments that she was receiving uh, for her HLH. Um, but ultimately, somewhat miraculously, if you want to call it that, she did pull through. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, she was actually ended up uh, being well enough to be discharged home sort of four months after she was initially admitted to hospital. Um, and um, she received eight kind of cycles of the atopicide-based chemotherapy. And then she was actually actually left on ruxolitinib um, at a very sort of slow tapering dose in combination with hydroxychloroquine uh, on discharge. Um, And before she left hospital, um, immunology was consulted and they did perform like a very comprehensive uh, review and and ordered, you know, all the testing that's, you know, beyond me in terms of what they look at uh, for uh, looking at immunodeficiencies. And ultimately, they concluded that they couldn't find any evidence of an underlying um, primary or acquired immunodeficiency. Oh, wow. So, um, <laughs> so it sounds like we only got like halfway through her, her stay and it was already rocky and it got rockier, but I'm, I'm really glad to hear that she's, uh, doing better now. You know, any, any kind of final thoughts from you, Sarah, on kind of takeaways from the case, from your perspective, from diagnosis or from treatment or, um, you know, how we share these cases with other specialties? Um, I guess if I could just add a quick addendum. So just following out her case to kind of the present day, I think the the kind of really interesting thing was that, you know, her, her initial presentation was so severe and, and so bad. And then, you know, she was kind of on this slow taper of the ruxolinib for about six months, and then she tapered off completely. Um, and she was just on some Plaquenil and, and actually did quite well and um, has continued to do quite well. And she ended up being started on a little bit of azathioprine because she was having some rash, which they thought was maybe ultimately attributable more to like an eczematous type rash. But uh, yeah, she she's doing really well to this day and uh, on pretty sort of like gentle immunosuppression overall compared to her uh, general presentation. So yeah, I think um, for me, the I'm, I'm not sure if I have any sort of strong takeaway points to this case. I think it's a lot of kind of question marks for me in terms of, you know, what was the trigger for her HLH? Like was her lupus potentially more active than was thought initially when she presented to hospital um, kind of six months into her diagnosis? Or was it just the combination of of the multiple infections with maybe some grumbling lupus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, it's really nuanced, I think, in terms of what uh, is the best course of action in terms of what to do with people's immunosuppression in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of wonder, you know, like with a retrospectoscope, you know, like potentially, you know, with more aggressive sort of immunosuppression up front, like could the episode of the, the HLH and macrophage activation been averted? But ultimately, I don't think it probably could have. I think it was probably driven by the infection. So... Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And like, to be clear, like, nothing that we have said is it it should be taken as a criticism of of the people who were involved in the case, right? Like, this is all Monday morning quarterbacking, and a case presented just perfectly by by Dr. Hansen here really highlights like the most important parts, no one's guiding you through a case in real time. Um, I, I think like what what I take away from cases like this is like every single time, um, you see these lupus patients who um, get surprisingly sick. It reminds you about how scary the disease can be 
because you also have some patients in your practice with just like a touch of lupus who are going to do great and, you know, just need a little whiff of Plaquenil and they'll, and they'll do really well for, for a really long time. But just to keep an eye out that like the disease can be so incredibly aggressive and life-threatening and uh, to always kind of have those antenna up, I think is maybe a, a, a takeaway for me to never, never trust it. What about you, Janet? I, right, right. I fully agree. Um, a, a couple just normal stuff to think about. I mean, you want to protect this young lady's bones. So calcium, vitamin D, she probably is at risk of diabetes. So you're going to follow all that of just sort of general care stuff, treat her blood pressure, uh, etc. But I can tell you, someone like this would worry me if they get another infection, that they just might go and derail again. Um, I've had a, not not this kind of thing, but some patients where they're in between, people can't understand why they have hundreds of pages of medical records because they look the picture of health. But you know, okay, they get COVID or they get it, just a regular pneumonia or something. And then everything kind of just uh, goes bad. So I, I do think maybe, you know, she might have had at least one of the infections way back because that node possibly came overnight, but it might not have. Um, So you kind of wonder that even was it infection that triggered her lupus? I still don't buy that the neutrophilic dermatosis is part of it, but whatever. I mean, sometimes sometimes the patients forget to read the textbook or the textbook should be rewritten as the case may be. And I think her neutrophils falling was a a reflection of sepsis and, you know, that kind of stuff. And those patients, you know, bad neutrophils, they're not going to fight off things the same, some people more than others. The final thing is I betcha she has some kind of weird acquired immune deficiency that's not yet testable a bit under the radar screen that probably was acquired but improved like maybe too when you immune suppress for such a long time like that your auto antibody to who knows what to something within your cascade maybe um, then improves maybe there's we know there wasn't terminal complement and all that but you do wonder especially with the low complements for a long time but I think I think the bottom line is it's very humbling. We learn from the patients, and it's uh, thank heavens it's a, a good ending for this young lady. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate you presenting such a an interesting case, and we're really thankful to the patient for allowing us to uh, discuss their their story. So, uh, thanks very much, and that's it for this episode of Around the Room. And we want others to put in cases. This was unbelievably unique and helpful for, I think, all of us. But cases common with weird twists or weird to begin with are just common cases that have a lot going on. That we, we welcome all these cases. It'll stump us, I think. Right, Daniel? <laughs> totally. I'm, We're I'm, easily <laughs> stumped sometimes. Yeah, I, I'm stumped right away. <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat. All right. Well, thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at C-R-A-S-C-R-Room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Leslie Ishimwe. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Sarah Hansen and Dr. Janet Pope. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. 
I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.